Everybody staying cool? Y'all have shorts on. I'm really jealous. I'm like exceedingly jealous about the shorts. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for the opportunity to hear from you. Lord, this is your living word that we read, and your Holy Spirit empowers us, just as Mike prayed, that we might hear directly from you, Lord. God, help us to trust what we hear from you. Help, help us to trust your word, Father, and obey it in the power and love of your spirit. In your son's name, amen. All right, so we're continuing our series in Isaiah. So we're going to be in chapter one of Isaiah. And while you're turning to Isaiah chapter one, I have another story for you. This is another hot weather story. So I thought it would be appropriate. And it has some other tie-ins too. So I think I've shared before that for family vacations, when I was a kid, we always would load up, you know, my parents would load up six kids into the big Chrysler station wagon. It went from initially a Rambler station wagon, no air conditioning, to a 1960-something giant Chrysler station wagon, no air conditioning. And we would all, it was like, if some of you read the essay, you know, Family Vacation, or maybe you saw the movie Family Vacation, that was us, right? We were just this big family of eight people on a Chrysler station wagon, except it's the opposite, because we're leaving California and going back to the Midwest to visit all of our relatives in Kansas and other places. So that was kind of our summer routine, our summer, summer ritual. And one, on one of these trips, typically we would leave really early in the morning. My dad would get us up at, you know, like a drill sergeant at like 2 o'clock in the morning, or we would leave later in the evening. To, and the reason for that is my dad wanted to get through the Mojave Desert without overheating, right? So we would head out, and I remember on one of these trips, we stopped for dinner in Vegas, all right? Vegas in the late 60s. And even as a kid, I could tell this is, you know, this is a city of, of idolatry for sure, right? That's probably being kind. You def definitely had that sense just even as a kid. And I remember, you know, my, my parents were super conservative Kansans, and... <laughs> I remember we had dinner, and we got up to leave dinner. My dad paid the bill. He got a little had a few a little few coin in his hand from the change from the bill. And on the way out, of course, there's the obligatory row of slot machines. So I could see it on my dad. You know, he's like, "Wow, I might drop a nickel on one of these machines, right?" And this is like a big deal to him. So sure enough, he walks up to a machine, he drops a nickel in there, and pulls the lever, and it's like, dink, dink, dink. Dink, nothing. And he just turns and walks out the door. And we all get in the car. We're all, and it's blazing. It's even at, at 9 o'clock, and I remember it was dark. So I think it was late at night, like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. We're all getting in the car, and it's still just blazing hot outside. And my dad starts rolling up all the windows. He got the new fancy electric windows in the Chrysler thing. He starts rolling up all the windows, and we're like, Dad, it's blazing hot out here. We don't have, you know, we didn't even think to say we don't have, we didn't, air conditioning just wasn't on the radar. So like, why are you rolling up the windows? And my dad's answer was, well, I'm just not going to breathe the air of a city that steals your money. <laughs> I'm like, seriously, Dad? It's called gambling. You drop a nickel in there, it's probably not going to come back, okay? That's how it works. But he, maybe he just wanted to play with his electric windows. I don't know. But that, that's what he said. And that's my story. So we are continuing this series in Isaiah. The title of the message this morning is Repent and the City of Faith. My alternate title, and actually I meant, 
I would have meant this title in all sincerity is Turn or Burn. But I know you would all know me, and knowing me, you take that as me being really glib and my dry sense of humor, but I really wouldn't mean that. I mean, really, often in this book of Isaiah, I think we're going to discover that the core message is, you know what, repent or perish. You know, things have gotten really, really desperate for Judah, and they have gone a long ways off the rail, and Isaiah is being given a a message to Judah that basically says, look, you either shape up or it's over. You're done. Okay, so that's 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 I think a large part of what Isaiah is saying, and we'll we'll see how that fleshes itself out as we go through the book. But there's also all the way through this book a lot of hope. There's a lot of silver lining. There's a lot of hopeful message about ultimate redemption. But you just want to be make sure you're on the ultimate redemption side and not on the burn side. All right. So let's go Isaiah chapter one. Verse 21, starting in verse 21. It says, How the faithful city has become a whore, or another translation, unchaste. Let's just, let's just stop right there for a minute. I just want to stop and look at this passage. How the faithful city has become a prostitute, unchaste. I mean, that is extreme language. How, how do you go from being a faithful city to unchaste, to a prostitute. That's just the, the contrast of that statement is so high. And, and what we're going to see all the way through the rest of this chapter is this really stark, intense contrast where you have, over here you have the faithful city, but it's become a harlot. It's just this extreme contrast. And when Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, really all through the Bible, when God caused causes his people, when he calls his people, when he names his people, when he says that his people have the character of a harlot, he's not talking about, you know, sexual promiscuity. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about worshiping other things besides him. A passage, I think, that really, really speaks to this very very dramatically, very clearly, very, very graphically, is in Hosea chapter 4. Starting in verse 12, it says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Think about how crazy that is. What God is saying right there is people are looking for wisdom and guidance and counsel from a piece of wood, right? They inquire, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Right? Their, their stick, their walking stick, is preaching to them and giving them, you know, inspired messages. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Again, not talking about sexual promiscuity, but talking about unfaithfulness in terms of how we worship God versus worshiping his creation. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Why does God use such graphic language to talk about, you know, worshiping idols? Because what, what he's really talking about there is the people of Israel, God's people are not worshiping him. They're worshiping a created thing. Oftentimes, they're worshiping, 
worshiping something that they themselves have shaped into the image of their own God? Why does he use this graphic imagery? And the reason he does that is he wants us to understand on the heart level. This is about the head and the heart, and maybe even primarily the heart. He wants you to understand from the heart of God how painful, how much it grieves him when we worship anything besides himself. It's think of, so what he's saying is think about it this way. If you're, if you're married and your spouse cheats on you, how painful is that for you? And not only does your spouse maybe have this one-off affair fling, I mean, that's horrible, right? But your spouse repeatedly continues to, on an ongoing basis to keep cheating on you over and over and over again. But not only that, what if your spouse goes out to the seediest part of the worst city and sells his or her body on the street to the slimiest first person that walks by with cash in his pocket? That's what it feels like to God when we worship something other than him. Can you feel that? You feel the, the weight of that? How much it grieves God when we worship something that's not him? Idolatry is going to be a huge theme. Already is a big theme. It's going to continue to be a big theme all the way through Isaiah. So I think it's worthwhile for us to take a little bit of time and talk about, well, what is idolatry? What does it mean to grieve God in that way? What does it mean to worship something other than him? So the way I want to define idolatry is, first of all, talk about sort of what is the org chart of God and his creation? What's the structure? What's the hierarchical structure of, of God and his creation? God is very old school when it comes to hierarchy, when it comes to his organizational chart. You know, in our postmodern culture, we, we like things to be very flat and sort of non-vertical, non-hierarchical, but in God's economy, it's, it's very hierar- hierarchical. <laughs> Say that 20 times. So it's really simple. Here's God and here's his creation. Right? That's the hierarchy. And God is holy, holy, holy. Right? He is high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. He is absolutely holy. And what does holy mean? Holy means set apart. Holy means utterly different. Okay? God is not his creation. He created creation, but he is not creation. He exists apart from creation. And he is utterly and completely different than his creation. His creation bears his thumbprint. Right? His creation is patterned after his character, but it's not him. He is utterly, absolutely different, separate from his creation. Okay? So the hierarchy is God, his creation. Within creation, there's another hierarchy that reflects and mirrors that exact same hierarchy, and that is human beings and the rest of creation. So here's what proper, this is what the proper relationship is, what it looks like in terms of being properly related to God and properly related to his creation, I would define it this way. We worship and serve under God while ruling over his creation. You got that? We worship and serve under God while ruling over his creation. Where do I get that from? Well, obviously, I think the worship and serving God is obvious, but we'll look at it anyway just so we're clear. We just went through... Um, the Ten Commandments, and what are the first two commandments? Anybody remember? If you don't remember, you can turn to Exodus 20, 
verse 3, you shall have no other what? Gods. Little g. You shall have no other gods. They're not really gods, but we turn them into gods in our heart and our mind. We make them as if they're gods. They're not really gods. But you should have no other gods before me, meaning higher, higher priority than me. There's nothing higher than me. There's nothing before me. I am preeminent, okay? You should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why is God so concerned about us not making some kind of image based on his creation to represent him? Even in the Christian church, in some places, we will make images to try to represent him, but he actually forbids it in, in uh, Exodus. And why would he do that? Because we, the moment we make an image, what's our point of reference? How do we make an image of God? He's spirit and utterly different than his creation. How do we make an image of that? Well, the only way we can make an image of that is to reference his creation. Do, a, do this big, amazing, beautiful eagle or this amazing angelic being. And even the angelic beings, we tend to use the physical created world as a point of reference, right? But the problem is, is the moment you do that, now you've taken the eternal, perfect, omniscient God and you've brought him down to a finite created being, right? So that's why God is, prohibits us to make an image of him and, to, to, and even worse, to, wor- to worship that image because that's not him. You know, the created thing is not him. He may have created it, but it's not him. So don't worship it. And don't even make an image to try to worship kind of God through that image because that image is going to limit your perspective and your view and your understanding of who God actually ultimately is, right? So we worship and we serve under God. Notice chapter 5 says, you shall not bow down to them, which is about worshiping, about submitting, okay? The key key idea there is to submit. Don't submit to these created images or serve them, okay? So the first part of my definition, we, sh- we worship and serve under God, I think is well supported in the beginning there of the Ten Commandments, while ruling over his creation. Do you re- recognize, do you realize that God's plan for us, God's intention for us, the way he has organized his creation is for us to rule over his creation? creation. They have dominion over his creation. The place that, that speaks to that very directly is right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He's created the whole cosmos. He's created the whole world. He's created the garden. He's created man. And he says in verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the... Um, He's talking to man. He said, so God, let me back up to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in his image. We are patterned after him. We have his thumbprint, but we're still not him, okay? We're still not God, right? But we're created in his image, and then God gives us a command. He gives us a purpose. Our purpose is what? Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? 
subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right? So we are to have dominion over the created world. That's our job. That's our place. That's our role that God's given us. But God is God. And God, and we serve and we worship God and we dominate the earth. Is that awesome? That's kind of awesome, no? Right? Some of you are going, man, I don't dominate much of this earth. Talk. <laughs> you haven't been to my household, man. <laughs> I got one little corner in the garage. That's my little dom. My little domain right there. But the truth and the reality is God has put us as, as humankind in the role of dominating over creation. And isn't that even in our fallen state, isn't that actually true? Isn't that what we see? Who's, who's dominating the earth, us or creation itself? I would, I would say we're pretty much a dominant species on this planet. Right? So that's how, we ought, how things ought to be and how we ought to relate to God and how we ought to relate to creation. So what is idolatry? Idolatry takes that structure, that pattern, and turns it inside out and upside down. It just inverts that whole pattern. And so the definition that I'm working, my working definition so far, it's probably going to evolve as we go, but my working definition is we worship and serve under creation while ruling over God. Let me say that again. We worship and serve under creation while ruling over God. So when we take something, some created thing, and we look to that created thing for our ultimate joy, our ultimate blessing, our ultimate hope, right? What we're doing is we're, we're bending our knee and we're submitting to that thing and saying, hey, you are what's going to make me happy. You are what's going to make me full and filled and blessed. And we actually begin to serve that thing, do we not? And in the process of doing that, aren't, what we, aren't we really saying, you know what, Lord, I know better than you. I know better than you what's good for me and what I want and what I need. Therefore, I'm not going to obey your rule. I'm going to rule over your commandment and choose what I want for myself, which is this thing over here, which I think is going to give me greater blessing than you can. And as I say that, of course, that sounds ridiculous, and yet... Sin is such uh, a deceitful thing. It, in, the, in the midst of it, it can be hard to see. So, so let me put it this way. If you enjoy a glass of wine, does that wine serve you? Or are you serving that wine? If you talk to anyone who's a recovered alcoholic, they can tell you at some point in the process of their alcoholism, they went from a place where wine served them to a place where they were serving wine. And they were sacrificing their job. They were sacrificing their family. They were sacrificing their household to serve wine, right? And you can take wine and just make that a blank and fill it in with whatever you want. So is social media serving you or are you serving social media? The social media empowering you to express the love of Christ to your family and friends and your neighborhood and the greater community at large, is it serving you in that purpose? Or are you serving social media in this desperate race to try to get love and acceptance and empowerment from having 
more friends, quote-unquote friends, right? Is it serving you? Is the created world serving you? Or are you serving it? Are you bending your knee to the created world? That's the question. And, and when you start to sense, you know what? Food is no longer serving me. I am serving food. You need to start thinking, well, maybe that's becoming an idol in my life, right? And I'm just grabbing a few random things. It could be anything. It could be any created thing. It could be a dolphin. Dolphins are awesome. I love dolphins. They're amazing. Amazing swimmers. Seem to be pretty intelligent. But at what point do we go, kind of start elevating that creature up to a place of deity? Not too many people do that. That's not probably the best example. Maybe a better example is an eagle. That's probably a little closer home to me. I think eagles are awesome. They're, they're cool. Plus, they're our national bird, so they become, they've become an iconic reference for us that has built into it a lot, of, a lot of feelings of respect, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But at what point does the national icon become an idol? Would I even dare to say, can we at some point look at the stars and stripes? Now, I have the greatest respect in the world for our country and for our flag, right? I would never desecrate or disrespect the flag of our nation. That's, that's just me, all right? But at what point does that begin to become a god, right? At what point can the United States of America do no wrong and have perfect a perfect record in the world? Well, I can tell you right now, we don't. You know, either objectively or subjectively, we do not. And ultimately, America needs to submit to the lordship of Christ, right? So you need to think about this yourself. What in the created universe are you serving that you should not be serving? In fact, maybe you should be ruling and dominating it and instead be serving and worshiping the creator of the universe, all right? So idolatry is serving, worshiping the created universe. Did I just say you should be serving the creative universe? Did I make that slip? Anyway, um, you should be serving and worshiping God, the holy God, right? And not be worshiping or serving the created world. Amen? We're all there? We got that? So that's my, that's my working definition of idolatry so far. Okay? We'll, we'll see how that goes. So let's continue this passage. Already uh, 15 minutes, and we're only halfway through the first verse, right? Have no fear, we're going to move, we're going to move now. Isaiah chapter 1, 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Now notice as I go through this passage, the extreme contrast all the way through this passage. It's it's what they were before, and now what they've become is just a crazy stark contra- contrast. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. I, li- I like that passage, your best wine mixed with water. It's like when we worship God, when we're rightly orientated toward God and, and, and then using his created world and having dominance over his created world, it's rich and it's full and it's nurturing and it's a blessing. But when we flip that upside down and begin to serve that created thing, it gets watered down. It gets, has no potency. It becomes just lukewarm, watered down, icky 
syrup, or not even syrup, vinegar, right? If, particularly if it's wine, right? So, so, and it and it, it strikes me how the enemy has done such a good job of tempting us with the idea that somehow this created thing is going to bless us. Somehow this created thing is going to ultimately fulfill us and bring us joy and blessing and happiness. If we elevate it to that level, it will just leave us empty, watered down. 22 years, uh, 23, your princes are rebels. Your princes have become rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after a gift. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Look at the contrast there. Everyone is chasing after money, bribes and gifts, power and money. They're chasing after that. But the people who can't, who don't have any of that, who have no power, who have no money, are ignored, right? Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ha, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Now, this is crazy, right? Because who's God talking to? He's talking to the people of Judah. He's talking to his own people, and he's saying, my own people have become my enemy, right? And I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with them as an enemy. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I've I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. And here's where the pivot point is. It's a critical pivot point, and this is where we go from despair to hope. And it will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Alloy means a mixed metal, right? Pure gold or pure silver is just gold silver. And alloy is when you mix gold with another metal to make it stiffer, right? But, but it's impure. The idea here is impurity. Zion, uh, I will, rest- I lost my place. 26, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So notice how he starts with, in 21, how the faithful city has fallen into idolatry, and then he ends here, not in, well, he ends in this verse that says, afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So Judah, Israel starts here, I mean, they're nominally faithful. They were never perfect, but they're nominally faithful, and they just, in this process of, of degradation and going from, from the high point to the lowest point possible, and what's, what's what appears to be driving this is their, their idolatry. They're service, serving and worshiping idols. So there's a lot of interesting hap- things happening here with this passage. One is, I already mentioned, the, the high contrast all the way through this passage. The other thing that's going on here is the way it kind of loops back on itself. We've talked before about a chiastic structure, and, and the purpose of that is to help us understand the idea more clearly, help help us remember the idea more clearly. How many of you remember when John F. Kennedy in one of his speeches, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather um, what you can do for your country. And why did Manny remember that? What? (laughs) Because he's old. And he also has a good memory. And it's a chiastic structure which helps us remember things like that. So what is that? What do I mean? Ask not what your country can do for you, okay, 
mirror image. Instead, ask what you can do for your country. See how it's a mirror image of each other? And just structurally, that helps our brain. Our brain likes that. So notice that there's kind of that structure in this passage along with this really intense contrast. So I'm going to reread this, but I'm going to read it. I'm, I've, I've put together kind of a... a, a, a uh, uh, the word escapes me. But I, I've just rewritten it in a way that makes this contrast and the structure much more obvious. So let me read it this way. It says, The faithful city has become unfaithful, but you will be called righteous and a faithful city. The just and righteous city has become murderous. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone is chasing money and, go, and no one cares for those who have none. But I will restore your judges, counselors, and righteousness. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine has become watered down. But I will smelt away your dross and clean away your impurities. All right, so do you see that, that progression of that? You started here, you started well, but through idolatry, you've been corrupted. Your silver has become dross. Dross is, is all the extra icky stuff that when you smell, when you're making metal or forming metal, it's the extra impurities that you don't want. They're hard to shape. They don't work well. You don't want the dross, right? It's impure. So you've started with silver and you've become corrupt with all these impurities, right? But, and here's the key, the key pivot is but I. Not but you, but I. I, God, will remove all the dross and restore you back to pure silver, okay? I will take your princes, who once should have been ruling as princes of the king, but now have become rebels and thieves. I'm going to restore them back to righteous judges, you know, healthy counselors, and restore righteousness in the city, right? The city that was faithful, that now has become a city of holotry, I'm going to restore back to a faithful city. So that's the progression. That's the pivot point. And don't our own lives sort of reflect that progression? Do you not see that kind of pattern in your own life? You start out maybe at some point you come to faith in Christ or, or you haven't come to faith in Christ, but, you, you know, you're normally not too bad, right, however you want to measure that. But as you tend to seek joy and pleasure and satisfaction in the created world, it gradually, slowly over time makes you more and more and more corrupt and more and more and more empty, and more and more desperate, right? But I, but God himself will restore you, will redeem you, will return you to the faithful city. That's the good news. That's the gospel, right? So two questions. How did Judea go from a faithful city to a city of idolatry, number one? Number two, how will God restore his people to being his faithful city? Okay, and, and the rest of this passage, I think, will answer both those questions. And actually, it kind of answers them in reverse order, but I'm going to just go in, in this order anyway. So verse um, 27. Someone say 27. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by, my, by justice, and those in her, here's a key word, who repent by righteousness. The key pivot point for us in dealing with our idolatry is to repent, okay? That's the pivot point. God's going to enable us to repent. God's going to make us righteous as we repent, and he's ultimately going to restore us. But our job 
is to repent. And repent means what? Repent means to, when you're facing this way, turn away from this thing and turn toward this thing. Okay? So then the question is, what are, we return, what are we turning away from and what are we turning toward? Whatever that is, we need to make that turn. We've got to repent. I'm gonna get, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment and get into what does that mean? What do we turn away from and what are we turning toward? And a big clue there is that word sin. I'm going to talk a lot about that in a moment. But, but before we go there, why is it that, that Judah has, has declined so far? Verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Maybe a better translation there is, for you shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Okay, what is God talking about there? Well, remember that verse we just read in, in Hosea 4.12. Let me just read it real quick to remind you. My people inquire of a piece of wood. Think oak tree, okay? My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They've left the God to worship idols, okay? And so oak is a euphemism, and actually sometimes even literally a place of idolatry. Notice in the next verse in Hosea, it says, uh, I, I will not... Uh, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes. And, uh, that's not where I wanted to read. Uh, 13. They sacrifice on top of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your bride commits adultery. So oak is very synonymous with idolatry because a, that was a good place to go out and worship, literally worship your idols and make sacrifices to your idols. Playing the whore means worshiping these idols, right? And so oak tree is very much connected with that. Also, the wood from an oak tree is a great wood for carving. It's a hard wood. You want a hard wood when you want to carve something. So what, what are you going to use to carve an idol out of? Probably a, a piece of oak lumber, right? So when Isaiah says in the passage that we're in, um, for they shall be ashamed of the, for you shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. What he's saying is you're going to be ashamed of the idols that you desired. And idolatry is all about desire, is it not? God has made us to desire Him. He has put something in our heart that is just not satisfied apart from Him. We have this intense, deep desire for Him and who He is. And when we replace him with something created, it just corrupts us. Not only does it corrupt us, but it grieves God because he's created us for something greater. He's created us for himself, right? But we cheat that and go after something that's imperfect and just temporal and created, and it, and it corrupts us. And it puts us to a place where of shame, right? Shame is, who likes to be ashamed? Anybody here enjoy a good shaming? I want to be ashamed. But you know what? When we go there and when we trade God for some created thing, ultimately you're going to come to a place sooner or later of deep shame and grief. All right? Sooner or later, that day will come. And hopefully it's sooner than later. One principle of this, by the way, is repent soon and repent often. Don't wait. 
Don't wait to repent. The longer you wait to repent, the more shame there's going to be, the more corruption there's going to be, the more harm there's going to be to yourself, and the more harm and hurt to the people around you. So if you're entertaining something and you're just holding back, you're just not wanting to, ready to turn away from it, I'm telling you, the longer you wait, the more painful it's going to be. Okay? And you're, you can't put it off forever. The day is coming. And I implore you, turn now and not wait until that day of judgment. All right? Because that would be the ultimate shame and the ultimate pain. Okay? So you'll be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Same idea here. Gardens very much connected to, related to pagan ritual idolatry. Okay? They would have these gardens. They would make these gardens, and they would go there and, and make their sacrifices. Even Robert read a couple of weeks ago a passage about them even sacrificing their children in these places. I mean, how far do you fall, how far have you fallen when you're at the point where you're sacrificing your own flesh and blood, your own children, to some wooden idol that you've carved out of an oak tree? And that's, that's pretty far. And we, you know, we're sophisticated 21st century people. And go, oh, that's ridiculous. I would never carve an idol out of wood and sacrifice my children to it. But do we find still a way to serve, even as believers in Christ, do we find a way to serve and, and even metaphorically um, bend our knee to a created thing rather than serving Christ, serving God? That's the question for us this morning. And whatever comes up for you there, your job is to repent. Okay? 30, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf, whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. This is really interesting. Um, there's a uh, theologian I really like, G.K. Beale. We were talking about him just the other day. He's written a whole book on we become what we worship. And when we worship idols, we become like those idols. And over and over again, uh, Scripture says that. It says, you know what? You want to worship a deaf and dumb and blind idol? Guess what? I'm going to make you deaf, dumb, and blind spiritually. I'm going to make you like the thing you worship. And, th- and th- this passage is reflecting that, that exact idea. You want to go worship under the oak trees? You want to go carve an idol out of, out of a chunk of oak? You want to go worship in this occultic garden? Guess what? I'm going to make you like that place. But it's not going to be pretty. You're going to be, uh, what does he say, uh, whose leaf withers, an oak whose all the leaves have withered off the oak, or a garden without water. Have you ever seen a garden that has been watered all summer long? It's the most, you know, ugliest, disparaging, saddest thing I think you can see. It's worse than just an uncultivated open field. It's just, it's just a, a, a sad thing. But God's saying, look, you want to you make idols out of my creation? That's how you're going to wind up. Lifeless, empty, dried out, no leaf, no shade. 31, and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together and with none to quench them. Notice the strong, the self-reliant, I know my way. I know the way better than God. God, I know better than you. I'm strong. I can pull myself up by my own, my own bootstraps, right? You know what? God's, God's like, you know what? Your strength is just tender for the fire, for the fire. and I'm going to burn up both you and your works. Right? All that you've invested in, 
all the ways that you've served these created things, all that work, all that investment, all that time, all that money, gone, burned up, toast. Because you've been worshiping the wrong thing. You've been serving the wrong thing. You've been bending your knee to the wrong thing. The thing that gives you no life, no hope, no joy. When you have right here in front of you me, me, myself, and I, who loves you, who gave you life, who created this amazing world for you. Worship me. Set your heart on me, and you're going to be filled and full and blessed. Right? But it's so insidious. It creeps in in so many ways. We all have our things. I've shared before, you know, my things, I'm like my dad. I'm, uh, my things are gadgets. I think gadgets are so cool. And I think, oh, man, the latest new iPad or the latest new com- uh, supercomputer, Power Mac, uh, that's just, if I get one of those and put it in my office, I'm going to be happy and f- fulfilled and satisfied. <laughs> and it's like, no, you're not. You're just going to be looking for the next thing all over again, right? So how, how do we repent? What, what happens when we repent? And what does that look like? And where does the power to repent come from? I think many of us have an idea what that looks like. And I'm really going to kind of key off the word Zion there in verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. So how is it that we repent? Where does the power come to repent? What are, it's clear we're turning away from idolatry, but what do we turn toward? What do we turn to? And I think one, one place to go, there's lots of places to go, but one place to go is Revelation chapter 14. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, okay, Zion, let's talk about Zion just real briefly. Mount Zion was the name of the city that David originally captured that ultimately became Jerusalem, okay? So it became, it went from uh, this little, you know, I think a Jebusite town, if I I remember correctly, to David's city, and from David's city really to the capital city of Judah and Israel, to the the United Kingdom of Israel, capital city, and then it's still the capital of Judah at, at this time, and it becomes synonymous with God and his people. Zion is the city of God where God's people dwell, okay? So it takes on a typology. It takes on a, a meaning that goes beyond just the specific geographic location of Jerusalem, and it becomes a representation of God and his people, and, his, and, and God's people dwelling with God. That, that's what Zion means ultimately, and particularly in this passage. So it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Okay, so John is seeing a vision of the heavenly Zion. It's no longer talking about Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in Palestine. He has this vision of the heavenly city, the throne room of God in heaven, and he's seeing 144,000. What is 144,000 who had his name and father's name written on their foreheads? Okay, numbers are really important. It's not that John has this vision, sees this vision, and he sees all these people, and he starts counting. He goes, okay, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay, uh, 140, there's 144,000 people standing here. That's not what's happening there. What's happening there, John sees 144,000 
as a representation of God's people. Why 144,000? Here's what, here's a, for those of you in the Revelation study, you know this. God's people are often referenced to the number 12. Okay? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, okay? 12 even in the, the, uh, the, the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, 12 gates, okay? 12 represents God's people. So you take 12 and you multiply 12 times 12 and you get what? 144? Okay, and then the, the number 1,000 is, co- is, is language that means a lot, many. You've all heard the verse, you know, a day in the world is like a 1,000 years in heaven. And a 1,000 years in heaven is like a day in the world. What does that mean? Literally, it's a mathematical equation. One day, earth day, equals a 1,000 heaven days. Well, it can't because then he flips it the other way around. So what he's saying is a day on the earth is like a long time in heaven, and a long time in heaven, or a, one, a short time in heaven can be like a long time of earth. Okay, so my point in that is the number is representative, it's symbolic. So a thousand, so you take 144, which represents the combined people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, and multiply it by a thousand, and you have God's people throughout the whole arc of the Bible, throughout all of history, and there's a whole lot of them, Okay. That's, that's what 144,000 means. So you have all of God's people in the heavenly Mount Zion, and they have the mark, they have written on their forehead um, the name of the Lamb and the Father's name. It's interesting, in popular culture, you hear all the time about the mark of the beast. Oh, what? don't get the mark of the beast, man. You'll be doomed if you get the mark of the beast. And you hardly ever, when was the last time you heard anyone talk about having the mark of Christ or the mark of the Father on your forehead? But Revelation talks about that as much or more than the mark of the beast, right? So don't worry about the mark of the beast. Worry about having salvation in Christ and being marked out by him because of your salvation in Christ, right? So you belong to Christ. And Christ is pictured as what? He's pictured as a lamb. Why is he pictured as a lamb? Because he's the sacrificial lamb. You know, he is, in in an earlier vision, John sees him as a lamb standing as though slain. Right? Jesus was slain for our sins, for our idolatry, our lusting after, desiring, serving, and bending the knee to his created world. For that he died so that we can turn to him and face him and embrace him and worship him. Right? So that's what the pivot point is. That's what the, the whole point of this message is, is repent from these created things that you are serving on one level or another and rather embrace and serve Christ. Amen? So I, there's more I could read here. I would love to read here, but for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to just read one last verse and then we'll pray. Verse 12 further down says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So if you're a believer in Christ, the message is endure. Stay in the fight. As Manny shared in our meeting yesterday, you know what? It's all about just staying in the fight. We don't fight perfectly. And sometimes we find ourselves being pulled off into coveting or or idolizing something that's not God. But you know what? Stay in the fight, meaning repent. Turn away from that and turn back again to Christ. And he will restore you. He promises to restore you however many times it takes. And by the way, it's just not about once or twice or three times repenting. The life of 
of a Christian staying in the fight, as Manny shared, means you just repent. You keep repenting. This moment you're aware that you're serving an idol again, you repent from it, and you turn and you embrace the Lord. That's the Christian life. That's what walking with the Lord means, and Christ himself has promised, A, to forgive you for that, and B, to restore you to his city, to his kingdom, make you a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Amen? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, because of your Son, because you gave your Son, and because, Jesus, you chose to submit yourself to the Father, even to the point of death. Because of that, we have the capacity, we have the ability to repent. Father, apart from you, apart from the finished work of Jesus, we would not even have the ability to repent. That because of you, because of your finished work, we can repent, Lord. We can repent from serving and worshiping some created thing and instead worship and serve you, the living God, the the eternal all-loving, all-powerful, full-of-life, blessed God of the universe. Lord, help us to turn. Help us to repent. Help us to see those foolish things that we're just serving, God, rather than, than, rather than using them to serve us. God, we are serving them. And it grieves your heart, God. Our unfaithfulness is such a grief to you, and we repent from that. We are sorry for that, Jesus. And we turn to you even now and we embrace your love and we look forward to the day, God, when all things, when you will make all things new. In your son's name, amen.